Father in heaven, thank you that there will be a last tear and a last marriage that breaks and a last night in prison and a last bullet. God, thank you for that. It it feels almost impossible to imagine. Yet we don't say that uh, sort of wishful thinking. We say that with certainty because we know that Jesus is returning. We know that he's bringing his kingdom to full completion. So God, as we turn our attention to the scriptures now and as we look at what that means and what that will look like, God, would it fill us with hope? Would it fill us with courage? Would it fill us with the ability to endure anything that we're experiencing in life now with the hope and the joy and the anticipation of Christ returning? God, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, that's what we're looking at this morning is what happens after the last tear falls. Uh, we've been in this series, as we've been in this Advent season. Advent means arrival, it means coming. It's the idea of anticipation, that just as, as uh, people anticipated God would send a Messiah and Jesus came as a baby, now we anticipate that Jesus will come back and that he will bring his kingdom uh, to fulfillment. So we've been looking at that each week, at a different aspect of that. We've talked about that our true hope isn't us going up into heaven somewhere, but it's actually heaven coming down to us. We're going to look more in, in detail what that looks like here today. We've also said that a kingdom is about a king. It's about Jesus, that that you don't have a kingdom of God without Jesus. He's the king. And so we love and we trust and we obey him. We've also talked about the idea that we want the kingdom to break in now, right? Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us have a foretaste. Let us have a glimpse of your kingdom coming into our lives. And so that's been our our heart. Uh, What we're going to look at here today in this final message in this series is the forever kingdom. That's the title of this message, the forever kingdom. What does it look like forever when Jesus returns? What will that be like? Now it's interesting because the Bible has these kind of very uh, important bookends. It's one of the reasons why I just don't think it makes any sense when people add to the Bible because the first three parts of the first three chapters of the Bible in Genesis describe how God made the world and how it got undone, not undone, but how it got marred and how it got broken by sin. Then the last three uh, chapters of the Bible talk about how God ultimately does away with sin and recreates the world. And so that's these kind of bookends of the story. And what we're going to look at today is in uh, Revelation 21. Uh, By the way, it's not Revelations. Sometimes people will say that. It's just singular. It's just one revelation. And the revelation came to John. John was an apostle of Jesus. He was Jesus' closest, uh, or at least in the Gospel of John, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John was probably in his uh, mid to late teenage years. He would have been in our student ministry when he was following Jesus around. And so he outlived a lot of the other apostles. And he wrote, obviously, the Gospel of John. And then he wrote some letters. The the Advent reading we had earlier came from one of John's writings. And then he wrote this. Now, that's comforting to me because if you've ever tried to read Revelation, you'd be going like, what kind of drugs was this guy on? But to know, okay, this is one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of his closest friends. Uh, We can trust what he's uh, what he's writing in here. And, and we're going to look uh, primarily at, at chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. We'll look at a few other uh, places here towards the end of the book. But here's what you're going to see is four things that are different than you expect. Four surprises 
When you think about the forever kingdom, the, the, the way that Jesus will fulfill his kingdom, what will it be like then after the last tier falls? Well, it's going to be different than you expect, probably in four ways. Here's the first one. The kingdom is more physical than you think. It's more physical than you think. It's not just spiritual. It's not this like five-dimensional whatever that is. I tried to figure out in that interstellar movie I saw the other day. I don't know what five dimensions are, but it's not anything like that. It's not this sort of, you know, just clouds and maybe harps and chubby little babies. And who wants that? I mean, that sounds more like hell, at least every man in the room. Um, And what is, like, that's how people often think of heaven. But when, when God remakes the earth, when heaven comes down to earth, it will be very physical. It'll be very tactile. You'll be able to see it, smell it, and taste it. Let me show you. Here's uh, what we see in uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Earth is a very physical thing. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city Another physical thing, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you go uh, into verse 10, go a little bit further ahead here. This is John writing. He says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Think about how physical a mountain is. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, walls are physical, with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Notice all of that is physical language. If you're in a spiritual realm of some kind, what good is north, south, east, and west? That's valuable on, on a new earth with mountains and walls and gates that make up a city, a physical place. Now listen, even in this passage, there's all kinds of imagery being used, which is to say we may not know exactly what that looks like, but it at least tells us there's a physical reality to this. This is not ethereal, it is not just spiritual, and I hope that encourages you, right? Because we have physical bodies, right? You don't do anything outside of your body, and we experience life as embodied souls. We can't imagine a reality that isn't physical. I think that's often why we have such a hard time anticipating heaven. I think it's why we get so attached to earth the way we know it, is because all we've ever heard is that it's someplace we go... And I'm not sure what happens. I guess I'll be happy. But it doesn't, nothing about it sounds appealing. But when you realize, no, the reality is heaven coming to earth in a physical reality. And it's even better. It takes all the best parts of earth and redoes them. Right? I just think, what, what would Hawaii look like? Remade. Get a little bit of a glimpse of this in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, a, a series of books written by C.S. Lewis, and just incredible imagery that helps us maybe get a taste of what some of this is like. And in, in Lewis's last book, the last, or I, I don't know if it's the last book, but it's the last battle. Um, I'm not, some, someone's going to tell me what it is. I don't know, but it's the last battle. I'm not sure of the order. Um, there's a description of this. Narnia is, is the world there that's 
a lot of the attention is focused on, and, and Narnia is being remade. It's this picture of heaven coming down to earth. And here's, here's Lewis's description. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The, the new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked like it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. And isn't that part of it? We just don't know. Like, well, what exactly will this be? It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. That's the idea. The reason we love this world and this physical existence, the reason why I just think this week, right, you'll, you'll love opening presents and you'll love looking at Christmas lights and you'll love tasting chocolate or eating ham or whatever you do. Those are all physical things, and you'll enjoy them. And, and some of it might be so good that someone will say, this tastes like a little slice of heaven. And they're right. Because heaven is more physical than you think. It's worth hoping in for its physical reality. But the kingdom is also more spiritual than you think. It's more spiritual than you think because God is at the center of it. God is the main attraction in the kingdom of God. We see that in this passage. If you're not interested in God, you aren't interested in this kingdom. Look at verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. If you were to read back in Genesis 1 and 2, you heard about God walking with them in the cool of the day, that God had relationship with them. And that's what's happening here. It's being undone. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is because of the presence of God. This presence of God is so powerful uh, that it says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. This is an incredible way to describe this, right? All throughout Scripture, uh, and we saw this the first, uh, the first Sunday of, of this series when we showed that YouTube video about heaven meeting earth. One of the points that was made there is that all throughout Scripture, the presence of God happens in a temple. It happens in a tabernacle. It's very interesting. I think about this when I drive by the temple just down the street here. And uh, when I got to do a tour of, of the, the LDS temple down the road, they said, now this one room, and, and if you've had a chance to tour it, it's this beautiful white, uh, white room, and it's, it's like the pinnacle of, of that architectural structure. And they say, now this is where we experience God's presence. Now listen, if you think you need to go to a place to experience God's presence, you build it nice. And you spend a lot of money on it, and you should. God's presence is there. That's a big deal. 
But the, the scripture declares that because of what Jesus has done as the true sacrificial lamb, we don't have to go to a temple to experience God's presence. We have God's presence as Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't need a temple because God is there. We don't need a building. We don't need a priest. We don't need something to mediate this. God is there. It's incredible. And he's the centerpiece of it. He's so bright. His glory gives, gives you the light. You don't need the sun. You don't need the moon. Do you get this? God is the main attraction of heaven. There's a spiritual reality to that. If you're not interested in God, if you're not interested in God now, you wouldn't like heaven. I remember a number of years ago, it was probably, probably seven or eight years ago, I got a chance to listen to John Piper. He's a, a preacher that I have loved for many years. He, he pastored in, in Minneapolis. And uh, when, I first, when I first heard him, he has this booming voice. And when I first heard him, it was on tapes. And, you know, anyone know what a tape is anymore, right? And, uh, you know, you didn't have internet video. I didn't know what he looked like. And the first time I saw him in person, he looked like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. <laughs> and... Uh, I was like, how is this voice coming out of this man? I mean, it's just incredible. I thought, like the first 10 minutes, I wasn't even listening. I was just like, where's the real guy talking behind the curtain? It's just amazing. But he's this big, booming, booming voice. Uh, not a big guy, real slight, actually. But he, he came to Arizona seven or eight years ago, and I had a chance to meet him, and he, he spoke at this uh, kind of one-day conference thing we did for a bunch of men. And he asked this question. He said, what if you could have... Everything that you anticipate about heaven, about the new heavens, the new earth, about the kingdom of God, what if you could have all of that? Right? Some of you are in pain. Your back, your knees, you get chronic migraines or headaches. You're experiencing cancer. You're experiencing all kinds of things. What if all that was gone? What if you could wake up feeling like a 10-year-old again in terms of how your body felt? And what if all the people that you loved that had died were there? You could see them and be reunited with them. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, children. You could be there, be with them. And what if you could do all the things you love to do? Right? For, for, for men, some of you would go, oh, you know, incredible golf courses and I can shoot guns. You know, what if the best, you know, stand-up comedians were there and they were clean and funny? They were all like, you know... I don't know. I don't want to say who. And, 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 what if, and what if for ladies, there was just endless rows of shoes? <laughs> and someone else did the laundry, right? And it's just like the best thing you could imagine. He said, what if you could have all that, but God wasn't there? Would you still want to go? And that is a key question, isn't it? I know for me, I had to go, I don't know. Like, if I'm going to give the right answer, yeah, I, I, want, I only want it if God's there. But I'm going to be honest, I go, it sounds pretty good. And to the degree that God grips your heart here, you will love the new heavens and the new earth. And to the degree that you find him boring and outdated and unnecessary, you won't enjoy it. Because the kingdom is not just more physical than you think, it's also more spiritual than you think. 
And here's the reality. We need both of these. We need both of these in terms of how, uh, because both are true and both impact the way we live now. So think about this for just a moment. If you were to, if you were to say, um, the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, physical is not part of it. It's just spiritual. Then the way you would live now as a Christian is you would say, all that matters are people's souls. All that matters are that people get converted and go to heaven. So I'm just going to share the gospel with people. I'm not going to feed the poor. I'm not going to clothe those in need. I'm not going to do acts of compassion and mercy on people who need it. I am just going to share the gospel all the time because what matters is the soul. That would be kind of fundamentalism. If you were to have none of the spiritual part and just kind of the physical part, which would be kind of more like classic liberalism, social gospel, you would go, well, we're going to feed the poor and we're going to clothe the needy and we're going to take care of people and meet their physical needs. And, you know, if they believe in Jesus or whatever, that doesn't matter. But the reality is we are both physical and spiritual creatures. And so, therefore, we anticipate and we hope in a new heavens and a new earth that is both physical and spiritual. This also, the reason why this matters so much, is this gives us hope. This makes it where no matter what we're enduring right now, we realize there's a better future here. There's a day when the last tear will fall. And we can stand resolute in hope, knowing that the end is not whatever might be our end here and right now. But the end is oceans and oceans of God's love forever. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a minister in Philadelphia a number of years ago. He preached at 10th Presbyterian Church, and he married a woman, the love of his life, and they had a 10-year-old, they had a daughter who, you know, when that daughter was about 10 years old, uh, his wife was, was uh, I should say, not killed, his wife died. She got sick and, and died, and it was unexpected, and it was really, really tragic. And I, some of you have been in those kinds of situations. You've been there. Um, you can imagine what that would be to lose your spouse, and now you're a single parent, and just all that goes with that. And This one day, uh, as they were processing and grieving what had happened, Barnhouse is walking down the street with his daughter, his 10-year-old daughter, and they're walking, and this, this truck gets really, really, she gets close to the edge of the sidewalk, and this truck gets really close and has this very near-miss kind of thing where he pulls her out of the way like at the last second, and her life is spared from getting hit by this truck on accident. And she's understandably rattled, and so he's hugging her, and he's holding her, and he's trying to calm her down. And all of a sudden, it hits him. He says, honey, which would you rather, to get hit by the truck or to get hit by the shadow of the truck? She said, well, of course, the shadow of the truck. He said, listen, Jesus got hit by the truck of death so that mommy could only get hit by its shadow. Yes, she's not with us, and yes, we miss her, but it's just the shadow of death because we will see her again in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you believe that, and if that's true and real to your heart, it changes the way you endure, the way you handle suffering, the way you handle disappointment and pain. The kingdom is both more spiritual and more physical than you expect. A few more surprises, and these two go together as well, very important. Number three, the kingdom is more gracious than you think. The kingdom is more gracious than you think. Everybody in the new heavens and the new earth will be there because of God's grace. 
there are not people that will be in the new heavens and the new earth who are there because of their good works, because of their effort, because of their striving, because of their morality. Can I get an amen to that? I don't like to say that much, but I feel like when we, when we, we make the point to go, you're saved by grace, not works, amen. That's the truth. That's the gospel. And we see that, actually, a couple little clues of, of that in this particular passage. Look at verse 2. This is one that a commentator pointed out. It says, and I, said the holy, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The new kingdom is coming down. Jesus, when he was born in a manger, came down. Every other religion... Every other system of thought is man trying to go up. I need to obey these things. I need to do these sacrifices. I need to confess to this person. I need to make this pilgrimage. I need to pray this many times a day. I need to, I need to, I need to. Here, God, let me come up to you. But Christianity, the gospel of grace, is God coming down. This is a gracious kingdom. This is a kingdom that is filled with people who don't deserve to experience it. We see this in verse 6. It says, And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus often talked about that he was the water of life and that people needed the true water, that they're thirsting for all these things. And, and that's invoked here. Jesus is saying, to the thirsty, I'll give from the water of life without payment. What does without payment mean? It's everybody's favorite word, right? Free. You don't pay for it. You can't pay for it. He's saying here, are you thirsty? Do you long for God's presence? Do you long for a new reality that is without all the tears and all the sin and all the pain? Don't you long for that? Aren't you thirsty for that? Come. Come. Drink from these living waters. And it's free. You can't pay for it. Some of you have experienced that grace, and yet you still live with all this guilt because you're trying to pay God back. And, and, and you can't pay God back. There's this incredible psalm where it says, how shall I repay you, God, for all your kindness to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and bless the Lord. It's the idea of saying, God, how am I going to repay you? I'm going to say, hey, fill it up again. Right, like a, like a little kid that sees something amazing and goes, do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Right, how am I going to repay God for all of his grace? I'm going to say, do it again. Because I'm never, God, God's never in my debt. Right? I, I don't ever owe him. I, I, can't, I can't repay him. This is a, from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now it's interesting when you think about this idea of thirst. How is this possible? How is it possible that God could allow all these sinners, all these people who have ignored God, who have rebelled against God, how is it that he could so graciously let them drink from the water of life, let them satisfy this thirst? How could God do that? Well, the Apostle John, in his gospel where he recounts Jesus' life and death and resurrection, he tells the story of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus says a number of things on the cross. And you know what one of them is? 
I thirst. And at that moment, did Jesus get refreshing water to quench his thirst? No, he was handed a sponge with vinegar on it. His thirst was not quenched on the cross as he paid for all of the sin that you and I have committed so that we could have our thirst quenched by the river of life. That's how that happens. That's how God can be so gracious, is at the cost of his own son, who in this passage is called a lamb. The purpose of a lamb in the Old Testament was not to be a pet, but to be a sacrifice. And Jesus was sacrificed so that we could be graciously brought in to God's family. God ignored Jesus' tears on the cross so he could wipe ours away. The kingdom is much more gracious than you think. If you're trying to to get to heaven through your good effort, if you're trying to get to God, you're working up and the kingdom comes down. So trust him by faith. Rely on him. Receive his gift. Finally, and this one might strike you as odd in light of what we just said. Finally, the kingdom is more demanding than you think. It's more demanding takes more effort. It takes even some work to endure to the end and to experience this kingdom. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 6, it said, to the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's totally free. It's yours. You want it? It's there. Come. Come. Whoever would come to the waters. And then verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Come, whoever wants to, but whoever conquers will have it. Now listen, Jesus isn't calling us to some sort of religious conquering or some sort of physical battle. What he's saying, and especially in this particular context, the book of Revelation is written to people who are experiencing all these things that are ready to blow up their faith. Physical persecution, false teaching, death, all these things that threaten them. And so this is to say, listen, if you experience God's grace, that grace calls you to live faithfully. It calls you to obey. It calls you to endure. It calls you to conquer. Rather than just saying, well, this means I have a get out of hell free card and I'm just going to live any way I want. This says, no, I so love this grace that has come that I am now going to pursue obedience diligently. I'm going to strive for it. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 about this. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What? Strive for holiness? I thought it was by grace. It is by grace. But without holiness, you won't see the Lord. Oh, I don't know if I get that. Well, I'll help you in just a moment try to understand that tension. But I need you to see first, the Bible teaches both things. He who endures demonstrates that he really received grace. He who falls away demonstrates that that grace had never really changed his heart. So the kingdom is both more gracious than you think and more demanding than you think. 
which means it should impact how we live. We should seek to be obedient. I think about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was one of the great thinkers of American history, and here's what he said. He said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Get what he's saying? If I thought within the hour Jesus is coming back, if there's something I wouldn't want to do if I knew that were the case, I'm not going to do it. And some of us might go, well, geez, Jonathan, I mean, take it easy, man. Like, you, you look a little bit uptight. Like, I mean, and this is one of 67 of these resolutions. I mean, relax, man. But he didn't relax. Why? Because he knew the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So not everyone gets to experience this kingdom. Many will experience instead the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice not just murderers and sexually immoral, but also the cowardly. Those who walked away from their faith because it was just a little bit too hard and the pressure was a little too high. Idolaters, those who loved other things, other worldly things, even other good things, more than they loved the Lord and so proved to not be his disciple. Experience the second death. I saw a tweet this week. I loved this. It said, he who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will only die once. If you're only born naturally, you will die at the end of your life and you will die again in the second death. But if you were born once and then born again into a living hope by the Spirit of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you will only taste death once, just the shadow of it. The kingdom is more demanding than you think. And, and again, this is, we need both of these. Just like we need both physical and spiritual, we need both gracious and demanding. The the grace of God saves us by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It always leads to strive after obedience to God. Now, this is is very hard to understand. Here's something that really, really helped me. Um, A couple years ago, we were with a small group of folks and we were studying the, the richness of the gospel and especially the idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, that no matter what we do, God can't love us any more or less because he's already loved us as much as he could in Jesus. And we, just, we, we were just having like week after week where we would read an article and read scripture and read things about this. And it was incredible. And then we came to a week, and I always love this because I've led a bunch of people through this material, and I always know it throws everyone off, and it's really fun as a leader to do that. And, and we came to this article called Pleasing God by Our Obedience. Pleasing God by Our Obedience. And the author's point was, Not that you can earn heaven by your obedience, but that God likes it when you obey him. He doesn't really like it when you don't. Brings him pleasure when you do the right thing. It honors him. Well, we had just had all this discussion about the free grace and how it didn't matter what you did. God couldn't love you anymore, couldn't love you any less. And, and there was all this angst in the room. And I, I remember really vividly sitting there and hearing from each person 
how frustrated they were at this. Like, it feels like we've just learned all about this grace, and now you're talking about these demands, and I just don't, it feels like I just got out of all this legalism, and now you're putting me right back there. What's going on? It seemed like everybody was kind of struggling with this, but I, I leaned over to, to Molly. I said, hey, honey, are you feeling some of the angst and the tension and the frustration that it seems like most everyone else is feeling? And she said, no, I, I don't, I'm not. I think everyone else was like, well, great. You know, like, but I said, okay, well, well why? why? Why not? And I was genuinely interested. Like, why, why is it? Why don't you feel this? Because I feel it some. And here's what she said. She said, you know what? I think it's because I had a great dad. She said, I had a dad who I always knew, no matter what, he loved me. And yet I knew that because he loved me, he had high expectations of me. And he expected certain things. And it disappointed him when I didn't do those. I, I never lost his love, but, but he still wanted me to do what he said. We went around the rest of the room, and especially the ladies in that room, almost, I don't think anyone else said they had a dad like that. They said, no, my dad was either this or he was this. He couldn't be both. So he'd shower all this affection on me, and then something would happen, and bam, he'd be angry, and he just went back and forth. And what I saw was that it's, it's that view that was actually shaping this view of God. And yet there's a clue here in this passage in verse 7. It says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Which means God isn't an on-again, off-again. God isn't a bipolar dad. God is a gracious father who loves you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to do the things that honor him. It's not going to take his love away from you if you don't. It might bring him an extra smile if you do. God is the father that you never had. Even if you had a great father, God's better. And the reality is that this kingdom that's coming, that we're anticipating, it's more physical than we think. It's gonna be, it's gonna be more beautiful. All the best parts that we taste here now, we're gonna taste more fully there. It's going to be more spiritual than we can imagine as God will be the heartbeat of it. It's more gracious than you could ever imagine. You can't get there on your own, and yet it's also more demanding. God calls you to a high standard to endure, to, to, to finish the race strong. That's what happens after the last tear falls. Don't you want that? Don't you thirst for that? Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you that the good news of the gospel is that God came down. We can't earn your approval. We can't earn your affection. You've given that to us freely. We pray, God, that by your grace that we could continue to stay faithful and strong and courageous, that we could endure and God, we, we so anticipate and long for and pray that you would give us even a taste now of the kingdom that's coming. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.